times we stay in a job, not because of financial reasons, but because we have been conditioned to believe that our work, our career is a reflection of our worthiness. And that can keep people stuck in places where they are not thriving. Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. So we recently had a Patreon meetup where we talked about what are some subjects kind of in the field right now with highly sensitive people in particular and people in Cheryl's courses right now and in the Patreon. And one subject that came up was anxiety around work and career. So there are the day-to-day anxieties and discomforts that highly sensitive people and people prone to anxiety feel in the workplace. And there are the broader existential anxieties that many have about their career, their career trajectory and choices and commitments. So we want to dive into this topic today, and it's another big, deep, juicy one. So we will we will dip our toes in and we will start this conversation, but certainly not end it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I want to start with a story about my first real foray into taking a peek behind the curtain of a corporate environment, you know, a big capital C career possibility. (laughs) So when I was a senior in college, I did an internship at Penguin Publishing, which is a big publishing house headquartered in New York City. And I had thought as an English major that maybe I wanted to work in publishing one day. I knew I didn't feel like I wanted to be a teacher, at least at that point in time. And if you're an English major, people typically say, oh, so you want to be a teacher? Or, oh, you want to work in publishing? So it was time for me to see if my love of books and reading might translate into a career in publishing. And it seemed like something that would be prestigious and you know, a place like Penguin, like, oh, wow, (laughs) rarefied. So there was a Penguin rep who came to our school to talk about their internship program. And I attended her session. And at the end, I went up to her and I said, you know, I know it's really competitive to try to get an internship at Penguin. I may have even applied the year before and not gotten one. And I said, like, is there anything you can share about how I might get an internship there? And she said, well, you know, most people in their cover letter, they say that they want to work at or they want to intern at a literary imprint. But not a lot of people say that they want to intern at an imprint that publishes mysteries and romance, more like commercial fiction. So, you know, if that's something you're interested in, that might help you. So, I mean, was I really interested in mystery and romance? No. But did I want to get an internship there and see what the publishing world was like? Yes. <laughs> so I wrote my cover letter and I mentioned romance and women's fiction. 
which it's so funny that there's a category that's women's, you know, women's books. Like, what does that even mean? But there you go. <laughs> and so I got my interview and it was so nerve wracking to like take the train into the city and sit down for an interview at Penguin. And I got the internship. And so right off the bat, I felt like a bit of an imposter because I had said I was a little more interested in romance than I actually was. And this was an imprint that published mystery books and young adult books and romance books. But I had gotten my foot in and now I was going to be in this very corporate publishing environment. And then this process of disillusionment began because <laughs> while there were things that were so exciting and really cool and interesting about it, I also saw how stressful it seemed to be. Mm. This was right before Penguin merged with Random House. And so I think it was an extra stressful time, but I just kind of got the sense that this is how it was, very deadline-driven um, my supervisor at the time was out for a bit because she had like stress-induced shingles. <laughs> the girl in the cubicle next to me who didn't work in editorial, but I think worked in like sales or some other division, but she was constantly on the phone talking to friends about just how stressed she was about her job in this very hushed, quiet <laughs> voice. And then I would go to these meetings, which it was really cool that I got to sit in on these marketing meetings where they talked about what books were coming up and they talked about the cover art and the marketing. And while that was really cool, it was also a little disillusioning because they would talk about these trends in, in book publishing, like, oh, you know, small towns are really popular right now. So we have six series set at, in small town bakeries and... Mm. <laughs> There was this whole conversation about romance books and is the male lead a billionaire or a cowboy? Or is he a billionaire cowboy? Like it has to be one of those. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a product just like any other mm. type of product. Like mm. where's the creativity? You know, my little idealism mm. was just being crushed. And at the end of the internship, my supervisor and I had lunch and she said, you know, I think you're smart. I think if you want to do this, like – you could do it. But just so you know, if you want to be an editor, you have to be a bit of a shark. And she mm -hmm. told me this story about how she had worked really hard to acquire an author who was very, very successful in self-publishing as a romance author. And, it's, and it took her so long to acquire this author. And then as soon as she did, her supervisor just said, and now I'm taking that author. She's my, She's mine now. And so I just... I was exposed to all of this and I felt so conflicted and a bit disillusioned. And, and you know, I talked to editorial assistants who were so underpaid and they brought so much work home with them just to try to work their way up. And they're in New York City where it's so expensive to live. And I knew I didn't really want to live in a city or commute into a city for work. And so... Mm. After that internship, I kind of had this sense of, oh, I guess publishing might not be for me. Mm. But then I was left like, oh, shoot. <laughs> well, what is for me? Where am I going to go mm. next? Mm -hmm. So that was really my first foray into this corporate environment and seeing behind the curtain, seeing like how the sausage is made, to use a kind of disgusting phrase. <laughs> and... And it really set me up for understanding that 
that entering into the world of work can be really difficult for for everyone and anyone. But I also think for highly sensitive people, we have these particular Mm -hmm. discomforts and concerns because we do tend to think very deeply (laughs) and we tend to have high ideals and a desire to do good in the world, to find meaningful work, but also to be safe and secure. (laughs) And so, so many things can start to come into conflict around like, okay, I need a job for my safety to just to just pay to live in this world. Mm-hmm. But it's also going to take so much time and time is so precious and I'm going to die one day. So like I want it to be meaningful and I don't want to mm. participate in oppressive and exploitative systems, but also how do I not? And what does that look like? And how do I, ch- can I change them? How do I be part of change? And, and also, oh gosh, I'm going to spend the vast majority of my time with these people. Like if I'm working a nine to five job, I'm going to spend more time with the people in this office than Mm. practically anyone else in my life. Mm -hmm. And oh gosh, this is a really extroverted environment and a very patriarchal environment. And I'm sensitive and I don't feel like I can be my authentic self. Mm. I mean, there's so much here on the day-to-day level and on the existential level. And so we have heard from many people at this point who have written to us or spoken to us about how uncomfortable and lonely and conflicted they feel at and about work and career. Yes. Yes. And so we're here today to talk about it. <laughs> yes, to unpack it as best we can. Yeah. In our in our limited time and format and also in our limited perspectives because I feel like the work world is so vast. Yes. And we're just coming to it as Two people, yes, connected to our audience and taking in those stories that that come to us. But it's a really great story, Victoria, that elucidates so many elements of what people struggle with in the work world. Um, and I'm kind of wishing that we had Dave here in this conversation, my husband, because he mm. spent so long in that world in – what one would think is a very idealistic, coveted role as a computer mm. animator and visual effects in Hollywood, at Sony, at Rhythm and Hughes, working on films like um, Scooby-Doo and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Harry Potter. Um, yeah. And yet his frustration was – immense to the point where he ended up leaving the entire career. And that was part of us leaving Los Angeles was once we had Everest, it was so apparent that the structure was not conducive to family life and to healthy living, especially once he transferred to Sony and they were expecting 70 hours a week and working overtime and we never saw him. And he often says exactly what you just said. Of, I spend infinitely more time with these people that yeah. I don't really care about than with my own family and my own child. And it was a phenomenally courageous career move on his part to leave that world that was stable, financially stable at that point. The, you know, Nothing is really as stable as we think because yeah. that entire industry ended up collapsing um, in a certain way. 
and getting completely reworked. And so many of his friends ended up getting laid off or fired and having to pivot and go into real estate or go into whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we think is stable is so often an illusion. Yep. And yet we gravitate towards that stability when we go for that more corporate or 40-hour a week or whatever it is. Um, But it was incredibly courageous and came at a cost to him to leave what he had always known and to move to Colorado where there is no visual effects industry. And I mean, that's a whole other conversation, which maybe we'll have with him at some point of what what that was for him to make that choice to prioritize being a dad, really, over his identity and the stability of that career. Um, Not easy and definitely had some negative ramifications. I don't think he would do it any differently today, but it speaks to how challenging it is to be who you are. So he's an artist, right? Like so many in our community. He is a highly sensitive artist, went to art school, got his bachelor's, his master's, two master's in art, um, was always at the top of his class, very, very talented as an artist. Um, Any of you who have had a session with me have seen, or my videos and my courses have seen his painting behind me. He's brilliant. And he was then funneled into, well, you're an artist, but no one really makes a living as an artist. Come on. Come on, son, get real, like from mm-hmm. his advisors. So here's this new burgeoning world of visual effects. Go here. Um, and it was creative, but also incredibly frustrating to feel like he was just a cog in the machine. Yeah. And not really expressing his soul. And so the move from Los Angeles to Colorado was largely driven by our desire to have a more balanced life and him to be available as a dad. And he didn't want to miss his sons being, I mean, Asher wasn't here at that point, but he didn't want to miss raising his children and miss their childhood. But at the same time, he was deeply frustrated being in that, that churning factory, you know, mindset of you are here to do this one little job. And, and it doesn't really speak to your soul and your gifts. So, I see that in so many of the professions of the people who are drawn here, Um, from teachers to nurses to lawyers, people who are want to be of service, like you said, and are idealists and want to make the world a better place. Like, what more noble profession is there than a teacher? What more noble profession is there than a nurse? I can't tell you how many teachers and nurses. Yeah. Um, and very jaded lawyers who yeah. end up having a career shift at some point, usually earlier rather than later, because the idealism that drove them into law and justice, they they it's like the frustration of not actually being able to make the difference that they were hoping to make, that we're, we we feel our smallness. Um, mm. And it's so sad because we have this mindset of, no, every person can make a difference. Just one person can make a difference. And certainly if you're a teacher working with one with children, you are, you know, you are making a difference in this kid's life or that kid's life. 
but you're also up against a system um, that, you know, one might think is more balanced and humane in terms of work-life balance because the school day ends at this time and then you have summers. And I think it is that, but then a lot of teachers are grossly underpaid um, and still and dealing with too many kids in a classroom, right, where they can't really attend to the social-emotional needs or the learning styles of their children that they are in in charge of. Um, And nursing is like the same thing. So you see it across fields, whether we call it corporate or not. Like you were saying earlier, Victoria, it's all corporate, right? We're all (laughs) – we're all in the system in one way or another, right? It's all a capitalist system and it's all designed to meet somebody else's needs that are not the people who are actually doing the work or the recipient of those people, mm-hmm. like the children or the patients or whoever it is. Um, and so then we're just left with this frustration and this ache and this pain Right, you see it in artists like my husband, but I see it so many people in my nine month course right now. Like I mentioned in our in our Patreon meetup, it was noticeable how many people in their surveys said, "I am really struggling with career and work anxiety," and some of it being post pandemic and what the pandemic did to kind of intercept and hijack mm. career momentum. Um, several people in PhD programs or just Mm. having received their PhD. And so academia is another area of a lot of idealism going in of, I want to contribute and make my mark and offer my my work. And yet the demand, the rigor of you have to publish this many articles in this time frame, it just kills the soul. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of the common theme of, like you said, the crushing, soul crushing, what the systems do. And it's tragic, right? We have all of these extraordinary humans ready and wide-eyed and willing and they're 21 or 22 and here I am (laughs) to save the world. I've come to save the world. (laughs) And then crush crush, cry, or I've come to offer my gifts. I've come to express my art or I've come to share my dance. I've come and then crush, crush, crush. And it's, so we're left with, so then what are we left with, right? We're left with the, the heartbreak of that, the frustration of that. We're left with the hope that, um, as so many systems and paradigms are dismantling that, I hold us in this pretty extraordinary liminal time where we are at least naming all the brokenness. And so from the naming, we hope that some kind of healthier model is born across fields um, from academia to, to healthcare, to lower, not higher education, but earlier education to the arts, to all of it. Um, But we are caught in the crossfire, everyone who's alive right now. Yeah. And what what do we do with that? I'm not expecting you to answer. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know. 
about Cheryl? <laughs> what do you think? Um, I know. And I mean, so I'm in this career shift right now where I I was holding all of these questions, you know, about a year out from college. I, I did find my way into, in many ways, a very positive work experience and environment of working for a nonprofit arts organization mm. that was a, a special program of a private foundation. And I was working for this nonprofit where we didn't have to hustle for funding in the way that other, mo- the vast majority of nonprofits do. Mm. Yes. I was able to do some creative work and administrative work. I did work with very beautiful people that I am close friends with. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I, I just went to a baby shower yesterday for my friend, Rebecca. We worked there together for about five years before she left. And she was like my big sister. I mean, I love mm. that woman. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I don't even have words. And my other coworkers who are still there. But it's complicated. It's so many things. Philanthropy is an incredibly problematic, complicated system when we mm. talk about larger systems. Um, and non-pro- the nonprofit world, just like with any with any service-oriented field like teaching or nursing, like you said, I mean, there are these pressures around serving others and being selfless to the point of exhaustion and depletion. Yes, yes. In the way that in corporate environments, you are expected to serve the company and claw your way up to the point of depletion, you know, right? And it's it's so complicated, but I, I did find myself in a pretty good spot where I could learn and make some good connections with uh, genuine mm. friendship connections mm-hmm. um, and benefit from certain resources, including really intensive education around diversity and inclusion and equity issues. Mm-hmm. And mm. so there were those, there were, and there was having a salary and having health insurance, these, these material benefits. Yes. And I also always, always had this question of in my heart of, could I be a counselor one day? <laughs> could mm. I do that? And I think there are these questions that come up around on a personal level, like, we are this very individualistic society, particularly like in the US, in white America, like we are this very individualistic society. When you think about being a young person and thinking, oh, I will change the world or it's on me or Mm -hmm. I'm going to make all the difference, like that in and of itself is part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Like I learned when I started working, you know, you're kind of given this mindset of you have to prove yourself. This is a meritocracy. You need to work hard and prove yourself and work your way up. Mm. But the first trick is that it's not actually a meritocracy. We know that now, right? The second trick is that if you are so focused on proving yourself, which starts before you get the job with proving that you deserve the job, then when you get into it, if you, like me, maybe made some statements in your cover letter that are not completely authentic, which you did (laughs) to get in the door, right? Then you feel like an- Fluff fluff the resume. Fluffed it up a little bit. Yeah. You feel like an imposter from day one, and you Mm. keep feeling like you have to prove yourself that you already know everything, and you've got this, and you don't you don't need any help. Like you'll you you can figure it all out on your own. 
And I learned like, oh, I actually am much better at this job when I talk about what I don't know and I have an orientation of like, I'm going to learn and Mm -hmm. I want to be part of all of us figuring out how to solve problems together, figuring Mm -hmm. out how to be a team that serves a certain mission and certain Mm -hmm. values. Like together, we will figure stuff out. We will learn. We will grow. Not like I have to prove that I deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky to be on a team where I did feel like over time as we had more comfort with each other and, and all of that, that like I could ask for help or I could say, I don't know, but let me find out. I could experiment with things. Not everyone is in that situation. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly like that in and of itself on a day-to-day level when you constantly feel like either I don't really know exactly what my job is, so how can I do it well? Or I feel like an imposter. I don't know everything. I should know everything. I don't know how to figure this out on my own. The day-to-day stress of that, especially as a person who really doesn't like uncertainty, Mm -hmm. really wants to do your best, has perfectionism and risk aversion, the day-to-day stress of feeling like you're not measuring up and proving yourself, of like you are an imposter, Mm. is, is so painful and can become debilitating because I Mm -hmm. did have seasons like that. And I just want to name that because I think something that helped me was just realizing how many people feel that way. Even people that I saw as like, of course, you're you're perfect for that job. They're so lucky to have you. You're so wonderful. Those Mm. people still felt that way. Yes. And when we do hold ourselves against these stated ideals of rugged individualism and meritocracy, we always feel like we're failing. But those mm-hmm. ideals, like those are not true. <laughs> no one gets anywhere completely on their own, completely mm-hmm. on their own merit. We are all mm-hmm. like many of us are benefiting from systems that work in our favor. Many people are suffering because of systems that explicitly hurt them. So I don't know. I just wanted to name that because it's it's one of those things that taps into the broader systemic and cultural factors and your day-to-day levels of stress of like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst. I'm failing. I don't belong here. Yes. I'm not good enough. As opposed to like having the sense of like, I'm learning. I'm good enough mm-hmm. and I'm learning and I can ask for help and I don't have to be everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. It's I feel like that factor adds a lot of stress to people who so deeply want to have just like the purest intentions and the and give the best effort. I think you're highlighting such an important piece, which is what is in our control in these work and career conversations and situations and what is outside of our control because we are in these systems that are bigger than we are. And so it's a common question that comes up in my courses when people are struggling with this is, are th- are my places of struggles places that would show up no matter anywhere. where I am, right. anywhere, no matter what job I'm doing? And is this just an escape hatch fantasy similar right. to relationship anxiety, right? Yes. Let's, is there some perfect job out there where I wouldn't feel my self-doubt, right. where I wouldn't feel, where I would feel just perfect and wonderfully suited for the job and totally valued? And 
usually the answer is no, because those were places that predated your work life, right? Those are places that live inside of you. That's not to say that there's not an intersection, right? There's a Venn diagram, of course, between in certain work environments, between self-doubt that you bring and self and the doubt that is coming to you from above. Yes. And so it's not black and white. It rarely is. If you are in a toxic work environment where you are being overly criticized, where the demand is too high for you to ever meet, then there's no amount of inner work that you can do that is going to make you feel okay, right? It's bigger than you are. And just like in a toxic relationship with a partner, there's no amount of inner work that's going to change the person that you're with if they are abusive in any way. So if you are in an abusive work environment, yes, it's time to pivot and consider what else or where else you might be able to go. Short of that, right? And again, it's not black and white. There's gradations of toxic work environments. Um, There's those inner places that you know belong to you and would show up no matter what work you have, right? And that's where you have some control. That's where you can do your inner work. And like you're saying, Victoria, is to look at those places of, am I holding myself to too high of a standard? Am I expecting myself to be perfect? Am I not allowing myself to say, I don't know? And what could shift and soften and ease up in my work environment if I was working more actively with those places that are getting stirred up here and would get stirred up anywhere? Yes, there are places that we absolutely can work on and work with and shine a light on. And then also to name, wow, not only are a lot of people struggling with this, so there's the shame normalizer, which will help me work with those places a little bit easier because the block of shame isn't in the way, the cloak of shame. And it's so big and vast, right? We are living under a lot of broken systems and paradigms that are not in service of well-being. But I also think about, you know, people like Brené Brown who do a lot of work in corporate America and I think like she's really trying to bring a different consciousness of emotional intelligence into the work environment. So like I think this conversation could feel really depressing <laughs> and like, oh my gosh, it's so much bigger than we are. And there are shifts that are happening. Yeah. Um, and there are, and some of it does come from the people saying, this is too much. We are burning out. Yeah. And so things like the four-day work week, which is kind of taking on a, a, a life of its own and and spreading around the globe and people that have been doing experiments in different countries to see does it affect productivity because of course that's the most important thing and like actually people are more productive yeah when they have more time off when they yeah. have a four day work week and they have a shorter work day um, so you know that's 
exciting to think, wow, there there are shifts coming from the top down. It's not happening fast enough, but it is happening, right? We are catching these glimpses of, oh, people are understanding that factory mindset does not really serve anybody. That was so well articulated, all of that, Cheryl. Thanks. <laughs> For someone who's never worked in a corporate environment, that was <laughs> so on well, point. <laughs> well, well, let me clarify for our audience. I took a temp job <laughs> after I graduated from college and I was totally lost. And I went to a temp agency and I took a temp job and I think I lasted maybe three days. Oh my gosh. Maybe- <laughs> I thought I was going to die. I was like on the 17th floor of some building somewhere in Los Angeles in a windowless room. Yeah. Filing. I was like Joe and Joe versus the volcano. Anyone is, (laughs) I mean, it's such a great movie for this conversation and very idealistic and total fantasy. But, you know, just like, the drudgery, the monotony of answering a phone. And so what I did was I worked in restaurants until I figured things out because I needed to be in a more vibrant Mm. environment where I was on my feet. I I couldn't stand sitting for that long. I needed to be able to see out into the world. I needed the world to come back in. Mm. Um, For as introverted as I am, I always loved – I was a hostess too and Mm. I couldn't I couldn't deal with serving. I I couldn't I tried and I was like this is too overwhelming. <laughs> it was too much pressure. I felt overwhelmed yeah. and I felt very stressed. Um and so I took the the nice job out front where I just greeted people and I usually was working with somebody else so you know we would chat and yeah. this was long before phones and it was yeah. so it's not like I could just zone out of my phone thank god. Yeah. I was Engage, and there was always a bartender right across, you know, and we would chit chat, and the regulars would come in. I I think it's a great job for you know, and I did a lot of babysitting also, mm. um, so I always loved kids, and and that felt, you know, meaningful but also doable to me. So, yeah. so yes, other than my like five or three day stint <laughs> in corporate America. Um, that is true. I have not been immersed in it, but I've been close enough to people yes. who have been, yes. including my husband and so many of my clients. Yes. And I have walked a lot of clients through that transition. Mm. And interestingly, many of them become therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's exciting to see people transition from that corporate soul deadening environment, not that it's always that way, but for these particular clients that I'm thinking of, it was into the work of being a therapist, which um, I also do get a lot of emails from people saying, tell me about your path and Mm -hmm. how did you do it? And I want to do what you do. And, and I feel called to become a therapist and, but I'm so scared. And I mean, that could be a whole episode unto itself. Um, because that's a lot of people in this audience. Yeah. Um, 
of course, makes so much sense. Have spent a lot of time in therapy, have read every book on the self-help shelf, um, are so well-versed, are highly sensitive, and make wonderful therapists. Um, and so, yes, I haven't had that direct experience other than that very limited little microcosm, but I, I, I've been in, in the field by proxy. some other jobs in between college and then taking that nonprofit job. But I was at that nonprofit job for basically over nine years until this Mm. past August. And the transition for me, though, as you and I talked about in your transition episode, you know, that transition for me of deciding to make a change was several years in the making. Mm. I mean, more than that, honestly, because There was a time period where I went to a bunch of information sessions about counseling programs in my area very early on in my 20s and in my Mm mid-20s, and I just felt, I can't do it yet. I don't have the Mm -hmm. financial stability yet. I I just, I'm not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And then I got to a point where I decided, okay, I'm going to do some more freelance podcasting work, this podcast and also a few others I was editing. And that was a lot of work on top of my nine to five. It was too much work on top of my nine to five, but I saved money so that I could, you know, pay for a few classes out of pocket and really just see how that felt. And if I wanted to keep moving forward, and it has never felt like a, a lightning bolt from the sky of like, yes, this is what you must do, Victoria. You must leave this job and walk into this other calling. Like it has never been like that. For mm. me, it's always a gradual step by step. Okay, how can I take care of myself in this process and measure the risks, but keep moving forward? You know, mm-hmm. build some buffer of saving up some money, but keep moving forward. And then it got to a point where I was like, I want to try to prioritize the type of well-being that I would want for my future clients one day, yes. for myself right now in this process of becoming a counselor. I yes. can't keep doing everything. And I will never feel like I've saved up enough money. I will never feel like I've I, that it's totally risk-free. At a certain point, I just have to decide – okay, this is enough. And so I finally decided, okay, this is enough. And I gave like six weeks notice. And and like you said, it comes at a cost. Like for me right now, the cost is financial. It's Mm -hmm. I have to really save and budget and be really mindful. And I don't know how long. I don't know what the future holds entirely, but I know that right now I'm a full-time student. I'm producing our podcast and I'm trying to live a life where, you know, there was a period there where I was working so much that I was not going out for like walks in the woods by myself. Mm. And when I would occasionally, occasionally get out for a walk in the woods, I would just start crying because I was like, I want to have a life where this is not a Herculean effort to just take a walk in the woods. Like I live very close to lots of (laughs) 
It's not yes. like I have to drive hours or I live in a city. Like there's a beautiful wooded path two minutes drive from my house, you know, like this mm. should I do I want to live a life where I have a different rhythm where I can do this and I can be a student and I can do other work that I love in podcasting and I can mm. move towards this path of being a counselor, which will come with its own host of ethical dilemmas and moral questions and work-life balance frustrations, I'm sure. I mean, it's also an imperfect – the healthcare system is deeply imperfect. Once I am interning, I will be working for free 20 hours a week. Yes. And – after that, you know, once I graduate, I will probably have to take like a very low paying job while I'm getting supervised and I will be in difficult situations. And again, we're never separate from the systems. Nothing is ever perfect. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's not a lightning bolt of clarity, but it was enough. It was there's all those questions around good enough. Is this a good enough job? Like yes. my job was a good enough job for nine years, right? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to follow this path of curiosity and this deep sense of like, okay, I only live once. Mm. I've, I've thought about this since I was 10 years old. <laughs> if it doesn't work out, I'll figure something else out. But I have to walk towards it and see. Yes. Oh. And I'm so darn proud of you for doing it and so excited that the world, your clients are going to get to experience you and the gift of you. It's to me so right and so brave. I think always brave to leave what we've known and go into the unknown. I love that you're highlighting enough because this word enough shows up in a lot of ways. It shows up around money, um, but it shows up a lot around worthiness, right? Yeah. And I think this is another piece to highlight Yes. the connection between work and worthiness because sometimes we stay in a job not because for not because of financial reasons but because we have been conditioned to believe that our work our career is a reflection of our worthiness yeah and that can keep people stuck in places where they are not thriving and that is a piece that is an internal place that can be worked with so that we start to reverse that equation that we express our value and we express it not not to try to get something back but to bring our gifts and our worth into the world i'm thinking of a few thinking of a few clients who in their 30s after working in the corporate world very intensely and then having children decided to leave to primarily raise their kids. And the courage and the bravery in that, right? The courage of saying, I am leaving that paycheck. And of course, being in a circumstance because of marriage or whatever, that they are able to do that financially. That is a gift and a blessing. And also doesn't come with its own challenges when one person is the sole breadwinner and the other person is primarily taking care of the children. Like all, none of these dynamics and equations are perfect by any means. Right. But for the purpose of this conversation, 
those clients had to have enough self-worth to be able to step away from that world where you are getting these sort of affirmations of worthiness, whether it's in the form of a paycheck or reviews, or you are still tied to that external system. And to leave that requires quite a lot of self-trust and um, a sense of sense of self, a sense of self-worth to to take the less paid or unpaid work in the case of raising children. And we all know it shouldn't be that way, yeah. right? You still should be getting a paycheck for raising your children because it is hard as hell. Um, or to take the less the less prestigious, the less financially lucrative job because it's more aligned with your values. Yes, it comes at the cost. And how sad that our that how sad that we have to make those choices, right? That's where we go to the bigger view of saying it it shouldn't be that way. And I hope and pray and I see us moving in a direction where we can do what we are here to do and be paid enough for it. You know, paid, paid enough, paid plenty. You know, maybe not a million dollars a year, but who needs that? Paid plenty. I am so glad you brought up worthiness because I think there are so many stories attached to work and worthiness, whether we are thinking about a transition or whether we're in a good enough job. You know, like Mm -hmm. when it came to me making a transition, I had this story in my head of, well, people are allowed to take leaps once they have paid their dues of like they have reached the most success they could. And this is where the proving yourself thing comes in. Dave yes. worked on Harry Potter, okay? He, he mm. proved his worth. He proved his value. He made it up the ladder. So yeah, he deserves to jump off the ladder, right? But mm. like, did I prove myself enough to deserve to leap and try something different? So I, mm. that was a voice that I heard of like, who am I to decide that, you know, for this fall semester – I want to focus on being a student and going for walks in the woods. Like, who do you think you are? Yes. (laughs) You must think you are just better than everyone else if that's what you want to do for a few months. Like, who do you think Mm. you are? Why do you think you've earned that or deserve it? Mm. And so there's that voice, right? (laughs) Which I had to just work with and go like, would I want that for a future client, for a friend, for anyone that I love, would I yes. would I want them to feel free enough to to make certain choices and try different things and and be healthier? And one thing that supported me was I've been listening to this podcast called Radical Simple Living, mm. and it's hosted by this British man who lives in a forest in Sweden, and he's a Quaker, and it is the simplest podcast. He's like, I hit record. I talk for a half hour next to my fireplace. His cats are always jumping on him. And then he hits stop. I love it. And he publishes it. And again, we can fall into these rabbit holes of flagellating ourselves for not living simply enough and not slowing down enough. It's not about that. I'm at a point yes. now where I think that self-trust of I'm going to take the gold of this mm. where I will use it and I will – the rest of it, I will say, oh, isn't that nice for him? You know, <laughs> like, yes. If I'm going to take that leap, I have to live. I, I live pretty simply 
already, but I think that money and time are often in this conflicting relationship where if you work, 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 you have more money, but you have less time. So then you're buying things out of convenience, right? And you don't have Mm. time. So you spend more money. So you need more money. Yes. Yes. If you make less money, but you have more time, sometimes you can save more money, right? Sometimes. I mean, it's all, everyone's situation Mm -hmm. is different, but like that is something that I've been exploring. And that came with this sense of, I have to believe that I'm worthy, like every other human is worthy of rest, reflection, time to cook, (laughs) time to sleep, (laughs) time to walk in the woods. That's right. For someone who's in a good enough job right now, or they sense, okay, it's basically good enough. Mm -hmm. I think the worthiness conversation comes in in all of these different situations that happen in the workplace of being a sensitive person and being like, wow, these interpersonal conflicts are, are difficult when my boss is yelling at me or when I'm in a meeting or at an event or a conference or a gala where I'm expected to be very extroverted. Mm. Or, wow, you know, it's hard for me to ask for vacation time. Even though I have it, I'm not taking it. Why? Mm-hmm. Or, wow, I'm feeling like an imposter. Wow, I'm beating up on myself. Wow, this critical voice is loud. And to yes. me, it's like sinking into that, like that sense of worthiness and self trust is what can help us say, I'm taking my vacation. I am logging off at five o'clock. I hear what you're saying. You're yelling right now. (laughs) I need a minute. You know what? I mean, that's really complicated, but the various ways that we can take care of ourselves, but Mm. we have to believe that we're worthy to even try and then find out is this a work environment where my attempts to take care of myself are respected? Yes. Or is it not? And I need to start making a plan. But yes. I think that's – I'm very glad you named the worthiness piece because I think it can come up for us even in an environment where we're like, this is good enough or good enough for now. Mm. But certain aspects of it are unbearable because I'm telling myself I'm not worthy of these actions and protections yes. that would that would make me feel better about my work experience yes. right now. These boundaries. Yes. That I am worthy to set these boundaries. Yes. Worthy enough to say, this doesn't work for me, or I get to log off at five, or I take my vacation time, or I'm not really okay with the way you're talking to me right now. However, that situation needs to be handled. Yes. Good. So good. Beautiful, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Jarrett Farkas for the use of our beautiful new theme music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe or follow, leave us a review, share it with a friend, and consider joining our Patreon, where we share regular bonus content and also host virtual meetups. Visit patreon.com slash gathering gold to learn more.